0: Welcome to the What A Pain Podcast. I'm Glyn Williams. And I'm Conrad Jacobs. Nice to see you again, Conrad. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you, Glyn. What about you? Yeah, good. I mean, as you know, we've just finished our chronic pain leads meeting. It's been a year since the last one, but a lovely meeting again. And it's giving us the chance to talk to Professor Chris Eccleston. Very excited to
1: have the opportunity to talk to him. He's, of course, a big name in the paediatric pain world. And we specifically want to talk to him about a paper that he wrote with many different collaborators called Delivering Transformative Action in Paediatric Pain, a Lancet Child and Adolescent Health Commission.
0: Yes, a um, very important uh, commission that he led, as you said, with lots of other very prominent people in the paediatric pain world. But asked to do by the Lancet is quite a big thing. and provides a very good platform for the whole community out there to be able to talk about paediatric pain.
1: And we're going to talk to him about four of the themes that are mentioned and described in the paper. And those themes are make pain matter, make pain understood, make pain visible, and make pain better.
0: Absolutely. Um, All, as Chris will allude to, very sort of obvious statements, but actually not so easy to do in practice. This is obviously a very large topic, and there was an awful lot to say. And I think it was all really interesting the way Chris presented it to us. So we're not going to chat too much for a change. I think we should just go in and let Chris do the talking. I agree. Well, Conrad and I are now here with Chris Eccleston. So welcome, Chris. Nice to see you. Nice to see you both. And Thanks very much for coming. As you know, we've asked you to come today. There are many, many things we could talk to you about, but we're going to hone in on one specific topic today, which is a commission that you did for The Lancet about delivering transformative action in paediatric pain. And we'll get on to that in a minute, but um, we'd quite like to get to know you a little bit. So I'm going to ask the first question. Where's your favourite place on earth? Oh my goodness,
2: my favourite place on earth. So I grew up close to the seaside. My favourite place as a child was always Formley Beach, which is on the northwest coast. Only the other day, I realized that I, wherever I am in the world, I know exactly how far away from the sea I am. And I think that comes back to wanting always to go back to the seaside. So these days, I don't actually spend a lot of time in my, that favorite place, but I do always have one eye thinking, when will I next be by the sea? What's your favorite beach? <laughs> Formby Beach. Formby Beach. Okay. Which is okay. That's your favorite In the Northwest, yeah. yeah. What irritates you? Irritates me... I don't get irritated very often. Oh, the usual things might irritate me, so rudeness, incompetence, people not really listening and looking for solutions. But I'm, my mind is always thinking about, you know, why is somebody not listening to me, or how I, how I might get around it. So, um, okay, you're a very positive person. You might say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think I, guess, I am, I think I am. I mean, can't I get a
1: minor annoyance out of you? A well, professional is Well, we have 40 minutes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. let's give it a go.. <laughs> okay. All right. So anyway, how did you get into pain?: So I grew up in Liverpool, and, which is actually a major pain centre, and when I was at undergraduate psychology in Lancaster, I got very interested in pain and reached out to pain clinicians in Liverpool. And very much from a psychological perspective, and they were nothing but kind and helpful people. Some of your listeners may have heard of Eric Gadiali, This is a little historical now. Chris Wells, who was the physician at Liverpool at the time. This is even before they built the Liverpool Centre. And they were incredibly welcoming and open and interested. So that was my start. And then when I was doing my uh, PhD training in uh, Reading and then in Oxford doing my PhD in pain, I was lucky enough to meet Tim Jack as a pain physician who had just come down from Leeds just to help set up the more psychosocial side of the Oxford Pain Relief Unit, as it was then known, and asked me if I would help. And so it, it grew from there.
1: And just taking you back a little bit, you said something really interesting. You got interested in
2: pain as an undergraduate. That's right. Why in pain? There was a lack of of psychology of the body, even at that point. And they're the bits I'd be really interested in. Because I was interested in perception. But then I always found that the bits that I was interested in were at the end of the textbook. So I would always reverse a textbook. So if you open an undergraduate textbook in perception, half of it's on vision. Then there's a whole section on audition. And then right at the end, there's when we have a body. And there might be one page on pain. And that bit was like, oh, hold on. That's the interesting bit. So that's where I got to it from. And as of course as you get older, you just have a lot more pain. So then it's become easier to, to justify. Yeah, yeah. And do you have a favorite book or article about pain? Anything that really inspired you? So there are a number of easy answers to that question. The first is in fiction. There's a book called Pincher Martin by William Golding. It's quite an interesting book because it's about a guy who washes up on a rock. He spends the entire book trying to reason his way out of his situation. And it's not ostensibly about pain, although you talk about pain, but it is about reasoning in suffering. And I thought that really has almost been the backdrop to my professional life, is trying to help people reason in suffering. A book that I like most in Pain that people don't talk about very much is David Morris's Culture of Pain. David's a friend of mine, lives in New York now and he he was an English scholar and he was really interested in in how we try to make sense of pain in our culture. And every patient you meet is pulling from their culture all the time to try and fit it into their experience to help them. Sometimes it works, and often it doesn't and David narrates that very well I think.
0: We put those um, your recommendations on the website afterwards so we'll put Great. it out there for the for the listeners. But we are here to talk about this commission yes. it with the Lancet. So could you just take us back to the beginning? How did it come about? Yes, it has a long gestation.
2: So uh, the way it came about was you may know that I was the coordinating editor, which is the lead editor for the Pain, Palliative and Supportive Care Cochrane Review Group for 10 years. So that was a group that was all about evidence-based medicine and pain. And the questions were all about what's the evidence for all types of treatments in, in pain. And we won a grant, and part of that grant was to review all the evidence in pediatric pain interventions, pharmacological and non-pharmacological. And we did that, and we wrote all of these individual reviews, and then we wrote a paper looking at pulling all these different reviews together. We got to this really interesting point. Where we'd reviewed all the evidence and thought, well, what are we going to do with this? So we decided to set up a closed meeting. So we invited the editors of journals, regulators, Business leaders, we invited her to the Welcome Trust where we set this meeting up. And that whole focus of that meeting was how do we change this? You know, it was called Time for Change. And the editor of the Lancet Child and Adolescent Journal came up to me at that meeting and said, Would you do a commission on this? Which is one of those things that you can't really say no to. Can you just explain exactly what a commission is? You know, What are they looking for? It's a really focused topic. Uh, And it can be one paper, it can be multiple papers, and then the journal agrees that they're going to really promote and focus this on this one topic that they've commissioned. So that's the language that they came up with. Reading the paper, there's a strong sense of urgency, strong sense
1: of change needs to happen. You're talking about 40 years from now. What will people think about the practices that we're doing now? What exactly
2: needs to change? It's a great question because it was around not just saying this is what has been done, but saying let's draw a line in the sand and this is what we need to do differently and this is how we need to think differently. Hopefully some of your listeners have read it, but if you remember there are four goals, four charges for action, things that we want to change, which is to make pain matter, make pain understood, make pain visible, and make pain better. And they're in a particular order for a reason. Normally, when I read something about pain, the sociology, the bit about culture, the bit about the world and policy always comes at the end. So we thought, this is our opportunity to turn it around. So it starts with, let's have a conversation about pain. Let's pull it out of the shadows. Let's give it a voice and let's make it matter. And how do you think we should achieve that? Well fundamentally pain lends itself to invisibility. It's a silencing process. There are lots of sociological reasons for that. Not least that in our culture pain is structured to be diagnostically useful, to be short lived, and to be something you should complain about to warn other people of harm. But when you have chronic pain, it becomes countercultural. It's not often diagnostically very helpful. It hasn't followed the rules of lasting a short amount of time. And it's hard to keep complaining and it's hard for people to hear. So you stop talking. So people with chronic pain retreat into the shadows. So the first thing we have to do is pull it back out, find a way of talking about it positively and giving voice to that experience. So that's the first step. I'm not always a great fan of of It's Good to Talk as a campaign. I actually think it is ostensibly good to talk, but it's also good to know how to listen and know how to listen to distress and then know how to have a conversation with someone who's distressed. But I think in this case, unless we can have a national and international conversation about the importance of chronic pain, the rest won't follow. And in the paper, you actually say, you and your co-authors actually
1: say that that people are almost conditioned to avoid distress and that Pain is one of those topics that people don't really want to talk about because the moment you start to empathize
2: too much, it becomes difficult for yourself. Yeah, that all of those um, factors operate at multiple levels. You're absolutely right. So one of them is listening to someone else's distress, which is actually quite a complicated advanced skill. Some people are very good at it. Some people who've never read a psychology book in their life are actually just naturally very good at it. But a lot of people are just what's called experientially avoidance, avoiding their own feelings because it makes you feel worse. So it does operate at that level. It also operates at a much more sociological or a cultural level, which is that we have this, if you don't know how to help, so often it can be distressing. So it's often easier not to listen or not to find out. And then, of course, we were also talking about this idea that, that we think it's some sort of weakness. People are fearful of being judged as weak because they're still complaining. That's very dominant in our pain culture, and we wanted
0: to shine a light on that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, we've just been talking together, and one of the things that's come up that we talked about previously is cynicism yes, amongst healthcare professionals. And I wonder with what you've just described, do you see, you know, we quite observe a lot of cynicism in healthcare professionals, and we observe a lot of what you might call black humour mm-hmm. amongst healthcare professionals. And so is what you're describing, do you think that they are symptoms of that? <laughs> Because we do see a lot of these complex patients with very difficult presentations.
2: Absolutely right. And then and then you think about the professions that people go into pain and in. Talking about black humor, it's always amusing that anesthetists um, are those who end up dealing with the most complex <laughs> patients in many ways. They're not necessarily skills you would have been taught in medicine. You would have had to learn them along the way.
0: Oh, very much so. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I often think I've worked in rheumatology a lot and, and the glory in rheumatology is in petri dishes. Mm-hmm. It's in immunology. It's not in talking to old ladies about their sore knees. So there's this mismatch between what you're told you're supposed to be pursuing for your career and actually what your clinical reality of your life is. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I think I am passionate about helping people skill up to be in these environments and avoiding the wrong type of cynicism that is really around being burnt or singed or being on the way to not being able to, as an unhelpful coping strategy. But hey, black humor is often a very helpful coping strategy. Could you tell us a bit about the second aim of the commission, namely to make pain understood? Yeah, so that's the one that people normally start their long book chapter with. That's the research one. What's the mechanism? We really need to better understand what the mechanism of chronic pain is. It's one of the real ironies of, you guys know this, of working in this field is that people think pain is simple and actually it's mechanistically so complex and so difficult and in so many ways we don't have a good enough signal. And There's a lot of work going on in the physiology as well and in in neurobiology increasingly over the last 10 to 15 years and in our field in developmental neurobiology as well. We're only just scraping the surface. So some of that was doing that work in the commission by saying, what do we know? But a lot of it is about saying, what can we learn and how do we accelerate the learning? Do we have a good sense of what we don't know? I don't think we do. We found ourselves in a situation where we've got rather siloed research firms if you like. I think campaign has got so complex, although we put a lot of lip service to being multidisciplinary. I think clinically, we're much more multidisciplinary than we are in research. In research, we're largely unidisciplinary. And I think that's hurting us. So in answer to, do we know what we don't know? Probably not, because there are It's And I, 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 you pointed out that I am quite a positive person. Part of the reason for that is not ignorance or lack of caring. It's just hard to be at the cutting edge in your own field. So if you've got a choice, do I read another paper that might move me slightly to being competitive within something that I know? Or do I call you guys and say, "Can can I spend a day in your clinic and meet patients and learn about it? Most patients will stay in the narrow field because it's tough and they have to get better. But actually, perhaps what we need is a, a new call to multidisciplinary research, then we might be better able to identify the gaps
1: so Chris, if you had a hundred million pounds for research
2: and you had to prioritize who to give the money to what would you do? Well, we've had this conversation recently because in the u k the advanced pain discovery program put twenty and um, versusrice uh, put twenty five million into into a program of work, and I think that one of the things that they haven't yet done, because those have been the original thinking, was setting up a National Institute for Pain Research. I think we need a, a National Institute for Pain Research. I do not particularly matter where it is. And in some ways, it could be a collaboratory of multiple places. And there are good models where this has worked elsewhere. It's worked in dementia. It's worked in, in Parkinson's to a certain degree. It's worked in cancer. I think Pain patients deserve that. I think that's where I would go with it. What programs of work would be in there? I think it would need to be translational. We would need to actually looking at what mechanism to clinical intervention. And I mean those things broadly. So I mean psychosocial mechanisms as well as, as molecular mechanisms and I mean intervention at a populational level as well as as well as an individual level. So it's not about one particular piece of discovery. It's about bringing those people together in in that space. I think that's what we need and
1: that's what we're missing. So making pain understood is not just about the scientific or the clinical community. It's also about patients and families as well.
2: What are the recommendations for for them? It is about involving patients at all levels, I think. And in terms of the science, it's also involving them at every level of that science. I think we're actually quite good at that. Maybe that's a little complacent because I do work in some other areas where people are discussing patient involvement as a novel idea and something that we should approach cautiously, whereas we're all in. We're actually checking the ideas, asking people what makes sense to them, checking the language. There was always a discussion about the relevance of the language. Also trying to keep up with what people's complex needs are. So I think involving all patients at one level but involving patients and families at multiple levels is a core part of what we do i think so the third one is making pain visible yes and uh, how would you think you should go about that at one level it's fascinating the, the question tell me about your pain or how bad is your pain gets asked thousands and thousands of times a day in all sorts of hospital environments so it's about trying to pull out that patient experience In the context, typically, of where it's asked, it's not about trying to understand the lived experience of the patient. It's about trying to use it diagnostically, but it could be about suddenly you've got it visible. So some of it's about uh, the recognition that people have the right to have their pain assessed, and that's where it starts at all levels. And uh, from neonates onwards, we should be having that conversation. We should be assessing why we're not doing that. And, of course, in pediatric pain, there's a history of if you say that to people in the street, they'd say, of course. But actually, we know that our history is that we often haven't measured pain. Mm. So I think it's not forgetting that history and making sure that it's done. And some of it's about innovation and how you do it and getting the science better of how you do it. Well, this is a subjective um, private mental event that we're trying to make observable
0: through an intermediary method. So there are good and bad ways of doing that. And does it also encompass making pain visible in the sense of we're making the population understand that this is a problem. It does, and that's where it overlaps with that concept of
2: uh, of making it matter, is actually having a mature conversation about pain. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think that started to happen post-COVID, is that we'll see now lots of discussions about people being out of the workforce, about being at home with pain. There's much more of a, I'd characterize it as a confusion at least in the UK, amongst about how to talk about pain. But I, I'll take it because that's a lot better than it used to be, which is less to not talk about it at all. So I think it does making it visible at all levels, at a cultural level as well. There have been attempts to find an objective
1: measure yeah. of pain as well. How do you feel about that? You may finally
2: have found something to irritate me. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. I told you we'd get there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think when people say that, I, I'm mostly irritated with myself because I haven't found yet a really pithy, persuasive, powerful way of quickly correcting that philosophical error which is fundamentally what it is. It's what Gilbert Ryle called the category error. You can't describe a subject one experience by reference to another experience. It is a private, unknowable event. That doesn't mean it's not measurable. It doesn't mean it's, uh, it's not possible. And then... Does it not correlate with objective events?
1: It does, yeah. And with measures? It does. And therefore, don't we have an objective measure then of that private... And how, objective do you, feeling. and how do you validate that objective
2: measure? I'm asking the questions, Chris. <laughs> I'm asking the questions. You validate it <laughs> by referring back to subjective report. Yeah. So it's a little circular. Actually, at a philosophical level, I don't know why people are so scared of subjective events. So I think, for example, um, which comes back to what's really interesting about pain is this sort of cultural aspect of it that people... I feel able to negate your individual experience. And they don't really do that in other ways. They don't say, well, I don't really think you're grieving because you're not displaying all the signs of grief. I know you tell me you're grieving, but no, you're not. That would be a really strange conversation to have. We don't say, well, you're not really in love. Are you really? Because you don't look. I don't think you are. But we do it in pain all the time. We say, ah. No, it's not real it's not. Mm-hmm. because I can't see an objective measure. So why are we frightened of subjective events when actually that is the stuff of our everyday life, of passions, of needs, of wants, of desires, of thoughts, of beliefs? They're all subjective. Mm-hmm. We're not worried about them. So I don't think the search, I understand the search for a, a stable marker of experience because that might lead us to mechanism. <laughs> but I think in calling it an objective measure of pain, we, A, open the door to abuse by negating someone's experience, and B, we, we miss the nuance because we're not understanding the philosophy. They're not objective measures of pain, are they? I wouldn't call those outcomes uh, we do objective
1: measures. I guess kind of, kind of, I know that there have been attempts to correlate fMRI yeah. with subjective experiences. Yes. And very often what you see on the fMRI screens correlates with what people say
2: they experience. there's a good example. So pain is a private mental event that where people can subjectively report. Blood flow is blood flow. You can take a measure of that and it will correlate. And it may be interesting and it may lead you to mechanism, but it's not pain any more than it's grief or any more than it's love or any more than it's hunger. That's the point is that I'm not against finding reliable, stable biological measures that might help us shine a light on mechanism. But I think we lose something if we say, that's the measure of pain that I'm going to believe in, and I'm going to cut out self-report. And that's what I was trying to subtly Mm. remind you of earlier, is that because that measure is only validated as pain because it's matched to self-report. So it's a little odd if you then say, self-report is unreliable because actually we fixed it. Now we've got this subjective measure because actually you validate it against the unreliable self-report. I'm playing devil's advocate,
1: position I like to play. Yeah. But I guess it reminds me also a little bit of the, some of the discussion in the late 80s, early 90s of the last century. It was the decade of the brain, yes. I think, if I remember correctly, the 90s. And, and I remember being at university and doing neuroscience courses and and people saying to me, why are you doing psychology? It'll be redundant. And nobody will be talking about psychology. And the church um, were talking about, I'm hungry. They were talking about it in physiological terms. They were cutting out all psychological language. And that hasn't happened because of what you just said. You need to have something to refer to. You can look at the blood flow. You can look at activity. But then Mm. what does it mean?
2: Yeah. What does it mean? There's a beautiful paper by George Miller, who was the president of the American Psychological Association around that time, which is called The Misuse of Psychology in the Decade of the Brain. And, And he really goes into detail about how all of these types of problems, about why you can't replace one with the other. It's a bit like trying to describe particle physics by wave function or is trying to describe the software of a of a computer by describing its hardware they're both necessary and they're interrelated one doesn't describe the other it's a category error i understand the passion and the ambition but i think we need to be absolutely clear that psychology is a different discipline so you're not a reductionist <laughs> No, but I think I have demonstrated quite nicely but the utter failure to be able to do this in a pithy, easy way.
0: <laughs> I look forward to learning how to do that. So the fourth goal is to make pain better. Yes. And sort of reading that, it really seems to be quite a combination of the first three. Yeah, if we've made it, if we have a good understanding
2: of what might be causing it, so enough of an understanding, if we have made it visible, and we're even talking about it to begin with, then that gives us a platform for action that allows us to attempt to make things better. But I think that was an interesting section to write because remember this is across the board. Although I'm a psychologist, we were interested in pharmacotherapy and other non-pharmacological interventions as well as psychosocial interventions. I remember an old situation in pain, whereas we partly from what we discussed earlier is that we there's a long tradition of psychosocial interventions being researched, but much less so in pharmacology. So one of the things that was really nice was being able to look at how we could do things differently to the randomized control trial, whether we can do uh, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic studies individually with individual patients and individual dosing, or whether there, there are other ways of doing things rather than building up these almost impossible to recruit to and maintain and fund monolithic great big studies. And that discussion, I think, was one of the things I think is perhaps most far-reaching in the um, Commission is how we might think
0: about creating evidence in a different way. Do you think it's feasible at the moment with, I suppose, one trying to drive at is it's all very sensible, what you suggested and good goals to have, but what does it take to actually achieve it? Because it's, there's a lot of resource there, there's a lot of time, there's a lot of interest. So how do we promote all of that? There is Well,
2: for those people who managed to get all the way through 30,000 words, right at the end, there's a figure eight, which is about redesigning pain services. And I think that's where the action might come. Because rather than fixing all these individual pieces, I think we need to be much more ambitious. We need to actually think, you know, the models that we still use and that we've adopted are almost Victorian healthcare models of... Expertise sitting in, in incredibly well-trained and experienced individuals, people traveling physically to see those individuals, who then impart that knowledge. And we might need to think differently about whether that expertise sits in a system that might be technologically mediated. I know some of the listeners might find that tricky, but there might be a digital aspect to this, and that you look at multiple ways of moving this out. It's... um challenging but i think if we don't start that conversation about model reform and different ways of building modern clinics i think we will be locked into this lack of change that we have
0: so again because as you say it's ambitious and there's a lot of macro talk yes. in the paper so for our-, our listeners we're all working in our departments or services yeah well Maybe you might be a sole practitioner, you know, trying to (laughs) treat pediatric pain that you come across. So what are the small wins? You know, how can we take this commission and its advice and then just make little changes in our day-to-day lives and day-to-day practices?
2: That is very helpful. So I've worked at both levels, obviously. It is easy to have a big conversation about strategy and change that you might not see in your lifetime, fun though it is. But it's also interesting to get boots on the ground and be in those environments where you're trying to actually make real change. So one of the things I'm doing at the moment is for trying to introduce our virtual reality solution in chronic pain into an NHS environment. That's been fascinating because that really is detailed work with health and safety, with patient partners, with HR, with all going, the things that we uh, people do every day here. So I, I think you're right. It's a good challenge. It's not just staying the strata. So you've, you've got to roll up your sleeves and actually get things done on the ground. And that's how change happens as well. That's how new services happen. That's how new programs happen. But for the individual practitioners, which is a slightly separate question, there's a lot in here that is helpful. I think hopefully it's affirming. It actually shows that there are people out there who are thinking in particular ways. There's practical advice about how to individualize care and in particular on the Make Pain Better side, for not worrying about multiple trials, actually looking at individually with your patient, what you can be doing. The things we were talking about earlier, hopefully affirming, which is around understanding this is actually quite a difficult job. So chronic pain is really challenging and people have multiple influences on their lives and you get these small teachable moments where you can make a difference. So what we're also in here trying to pull out is what could you do in those small moments to make a difference? And then the last thing, I guess, is that sense of community is that um, I do worry about this precious community of paediatric pain specialists in all disciplines, is that we really need to find a stronger sort of community focus to support each other. Black humor is one thing, but maybe that's the start of having a more of a community supportive feel. And how do you see that? A bit like we said earlier, that's not going to happen by accident. I think it starts in the centres. It starts in culture and values and understanding what we're trying to achieve. It starts by trying to pull people together. A bit like you've been doing uh, here in Oxford, we're pulling people in and together. So, bizarrely, it's never happened before in the UK, bringing leads together, bringing people together, that's where it starts. Trying to understand what their challenges and their problems are, trying to network people into mm-hmm. that. Also trying to create career paths in this field. So the... Lancer
1: Lancet paper was published in 2021. Yes. Do you have any sense of how it was received and, and maybe even a sense of what the early impact of it
2: may have been? Yes. So we, it was a COVID baby, unfortunately, in the end. And there was supposed to be a very large launch event, which is partly what the Lancet commissions do, European Paediatrics. That ended up online, which was a shame. And I think it would have had more pickup if it had been a physical presence. They had planned a lot of activity around stands and events and pulling people together and more political type events. But of course, it wasn't, remember, COVID wasn't wasn't just that we couldn't travel. It was just that all policy, all planning and all strategy was all taken away and focused on them. and Getting a conversation about chronic pain in that context was really difficult. So I think I say that in a way that we started on the back foot a little bit because it wasn't what it was supposed to be. It sort of dribbled out in a way. But our community saw it, but it was meant to be much bigger than that. So in part answer to your question, I'm not sure that we ever recovered from that. I don't. That piece of work of engaging with people who wouldn't naturally find it, I think hasn't necessarily happened. That said, how do you measure the impact of these things? Uh, Well, there are typical academic ways of counting citations, and it's probably well cited in a short space of time. That does mean that some people are reading it and finding it useful enough to reference it in their own work. There are a couple of much more specific things that happened. The National Institute for Health Research in the UK put out a call almost totally based on the Commission for Research so they, um, the gaps that we identify in the Make Pain Understood, they just picked up and put into a research call. I've never seen that happen before so explicitly. This year, uh, you'll know, because we've all just been at the International Society of Pediatric Pain Meeting, that the Canadians reported a new national pain strategy, which is totally based on a commission. So it is early. I think it's only two years. But I'm emboldened, I think, and pleased with the traction it's getting so far. We are planning to ask that question in more evidence-based way. Typically, a commission, after five years, you would then look at what its impact has been. When I talked to the journal recently, they said it's too soon. But I am an optimistic and a positive person. I think change is slow, but unless we're really setting the direction... And encouraging young people into our field, smart people into our field, that's what's going to make the changes. So I'm trying to work and saying, yes, we do know where we're going. We do know where the problems are. And this is a great community. So come and join us. And it is a great community, isn't it? One of the
1: interesting things about going to Halifax, we're seeing again that there's multiple as it were generations of researchers and clinicians and there's the old guard kind of who was waving goodbye and then there is the the wave beneath them and then there are lots of different layers to the pediatric pain community and that was very interesting to see very nice to see and some very strong layers kind of of young
2: enthusiastic researchers and clinicians yes i certainly hope so because it is a good place to spend your career there's a lot of smart people as well really interesting questions we're willing
0: to listen don't always see that in every discipline i think there might be one well i'm sure there'll be lots of benefits but one of the main benefit i see of this is much softer and you'll probably never be able to measure it but it's the idea that we can all use this as a framework when we're having these discussions about you know setting up services improving services how do we take things forward and it's show to somebody and they will understand better I don't think you'll ever measure that, but I, I suspect it's going to be incredibly useful for all of us in the future. Thank you for saying that. There's a lot of hard work
2: by a lot of people. I mean, I was just leading it, so there are lots of people who are writing and working very hard on it, and they'd be pleased to, to hear that. And I, think, I, mean, I think you're right. It is, it is hard to measure. But if it provides that framework, if it starts the conversation. And you know, the funny thing is about The Lancet, it is just a journal. But as I said earlier, so because they said this is what we want to do, it's all about leadership, isn't it? Then we were able to get one funder, and getting one funder meant we could get a second funder. And in a way, it's a similar process. The fact that this is there, it's visible, and there's a whole process, means you can take it to a commissioner or you can take it to a hospital manager or you can say this is what we're doing. It's like magic, really. Well, that's the modern-day equivalent of the chat in the corridor. <laughs> yeah.
1: I just wanted to pick up on one other issue that was mentioned in the paper as well, and it's about complexity. And one of the themes that keep cropping up in our community, in the paediatric pain community, both here in the UK as well as internationally, is the increasing complexity of patients that we see. And what we mean by that is that they have more severe mental health issues, but also often come with all kinds of neurodevelopmental issues as well. And it sometimes begs the question, well, what are we treating? Are we treating pain? Are we treating a mental health issue? Do we need to treat a social issue? Do we need to provide them with an autism diagnosis, for example? What are some of your thoughts around that? And, and what do you think, what are the
2: implications for pain management? So I think that you have to treat the patient who comes to you rather than the ideal patient or the patient that you used to treat or the- The idea of who we should be treating, because that's what our service is. And I think that I do hear that a lot, actually, Mm -hmm. that not just in the UK, that case mix is changing, people are becoming more complex, because I get to travel a lot, and and it's not a Mm UK-specific challenge. But it is hard to unpick without the data, whether it's about growing awareness of the problem, which means that specialized centers are getting more complex Mm -hmm. referrals, or... But another hypothesis is that there's more awareness, but less service elsewhere. So those referrals are becoming more visible and coming out of the woodwork, if you like. Or it could be that sociological question that you hint at, that actually being an adolescent is a very different experience than it was perhaps when we were much more complex, much more challenging than many other problems. And I want to say that that's an empirical question. I'm not sure. I think we need to better understand that. We need to do some research on that. Because I'm not convinced yet that actually the world has changed in a really meaningful way in such a short space of time for adolescence. I think there are some things that are different in presenting. Um, So that's a question I might put back to you both. It's like how do we, and it's not really in this paper because it happens so quickly. I think it's not. We discuss it, but it's not not really developed. I think if we were writing this today, there'd probably be a much bigger section on exactly that question. But it has always been there. I mean, I my colleagues, um, particularly my pediatric colleagues, trained in developmental disorders as well as in pediatric pain. They often came from that route. So I'm finding I'm not giving you a very clear answer, but I'm finding it hard to unpick that. I observe that this conversation, but I'm not absolutely clear there is a meaningful
0: change going on. What do you think you guys are experts? I think it's very difficult. I mean, it's a question I ask myself. If you take the neurodiversity diagnosis, for example, I mean, there is no doubt I see more neurodiversity in our clinics now than I did 10 years ago. And equally as an anaesthetist, I come across more neurodiverse children who I treat anesthetically, and they can have their own separate challenges for anaesthesia just as they do for for pain. So is it that there's a sudden explosion? Mm. of this out there and if so why what's the difference or is it something that we just have become better at recognizing Mm. or categorizing however you want to call it and does that then make a difference i i don't know i i've asked lots of people this these questions who maybe are far more expert in neurodiversity than i am obviously and they can't seemingly give me a an answer to that question so i I genuinely i don't know i'm I'm sort of with you and i guess kind
1: of that may be the case for autism and ADHD, but in terms of mental health, we know that there are increasing difficulties with mental health in adolescents. and that's well documented in population data. That, particularly also kind of from 2011 onwards, for example, depression in girls has gone up quite significantly. And, you know, some people would say, well, what happened in 2011? And we all know what, what happens. Smartphones became extremely popular around that time. And so some people would suggest that, that the increase in depression, mental health issues partly related to the use of social media and increases in depression and anxiety may also be related to increases in chronic pain presentations, especially in the absence of Child psychiatry services that are easily accessible, because we know that, for example, about sixty percent of children who go to child psychiatry services report pain. If they can't go to child psychiatry, they go to pain.
2: It is challenging, isn't it? And this is exactly the type of research that we need to mm. do more of. Yeah. But there's very little of this type of research skill in the pain field. With the very few. Psychiatric epidemiologists who are working in this field, there are very few sociologists working in this field. You know, there are people who could, or media specialists, people who actually help us. Our psychology is much more focused around individuals and understanding the individual in front of us. We're not necessarily thinking about all of those social forces that are shaping them. And I think that um, it does get pulled out in this commission a little bit at the beginning, is we need a lot more of that to help us understand it, do and it would be better to, if we could understand what comes next, rather than we're still struggling to understand how we got here. It would be even nice to think what's going to come next, then we could plan for it. Yeah,
1: Chris, my father-in-law, who's sadly dead, Um, he died a few years ago. He was a real character, a real contrarian, and he said to me one day, "So you're a clinical psychologist?" Okay. How come there are more and more clinical psychologists in the world, and yet mental health is still not any better, and in fact, probably a bit worse? And I'm going to put the same point to you, but not about mental health, but about pain. So there are more and more people who understand and treat pain, but it doesn't feel as if there's any less of it, and we're not that good yet at treating chronic pain. What do you think?
2: Well, I think your father and I was a very wise man, and um I often uh, like to present it that way, too. When I first joined the International Association for the Study of Pain, I think there were about 1,300 people. Now there are about 8,000 people. And I've had a terrific career in pain. But we have, there are more people than ever in pain. There are um, we have fewer treatment options than we ever had before. We're actually withdrawing interventions. We know that even if we're adults, for example, we're withdrawing anti- certain types of antidepressants, we're withdrawing the opioids for obvious reasons. You know, we have fewer treatment options. We have more pain and we have lots of people studying it. However, I think what that tells us is that actually we just need to build that workforce even more. This is a fiendishly difficult problem. And I think that we are underestimated. And we are, I see that. In fact, I'm doing a lot more work in that area now of trying to, to address the chronic underfunding of this massive problem trying to have people not just jump to simple solutions. And I think that your father-in-law was right. The implication that what we're doing isn't helpful is not correct. I think the implication is that we need to be humbled by the size of the task ahead of us, celebrate the fact that we've managed to build this community even further. but It's still
0: small. But isn't it also a case that it's still early?
2: Early, Yeah, Yeah,
0: because I mean, we're talking about pain at the moment, but we could be talking about lots of things in life where a problem comes to light. And then once you start looking for that problem, you're going to go through a cycle of finding more of it. Yes. And we may still be at that early point in the curve where we're still trying to actually work out what the problem is and what the scale of the problem is. So even though we've upscaled in terms of knowledge and workforce, we've also massively upscaled in finding out exactly what the problem is. And you've got to find the point at which those two things, you know, one starts to overtake the other. Yes.
2: Yep. Early or small or when underestimating, but depending on how you want to put it, you're absolutely right. The danger there, of course, is that if we present it in that way to new scientists and new clinicians, they go, why would I want to work in that field? Because we're not going to see any innovation or any discovery in my lifetime then that would achieve the opposite. So I think we have to say that small changes are really important. You can make a real clinical difference with the people who are in front of you. You really can. You can do that now. You know, there's a lot of positivity about being in this field, but we do need more people and we need to create pathways for them and we need to lock them into that so that they're having a
0: positive experience. I think that's a great place to end. Chris, just one final question. Can we just ask you what you like about working in pain? Well, I
2: think I came for the science and I stayed for the people. I think we feel the same. So anyway,
0: Chris, thank you for your time. Been incredibly generous. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Fascinating interview there with Chris. I really enjoyed that. I felt we had a, a really good conversation. I mean, there's so much that you could talk about in a way, it's probably better that we just talk about two bigger themes rather than dissect it down into mm. very small parts. I would agree.
1: So clean what would you do with a big bag of money that you had to spend on pain?
0: Absolutely. I, I think Chris got it right, basically. I hundred percent agree with him. I, I mean, I'm sure we'd all love to do certain things with big bags of money, but actually if you're going to make the speciality move forward in the way that this commission suggests, it's about us all working together. Mm. It's about creating laboratories, whether they be virtual or whether they be real in the terms of a building, <laughs> but it's about collaboration between us all, working out what are the important questions that we need to ask across the whole of that translational research that needs to happen in in pediatric pain and get us all working together and get the sort of research workload out there. It's the only way that things are going to move forward.
1: Yeah, I agree. The only thing that I would add to that actually is that I think that this kind of multidisciplinary research centre should be attached to a clinical centre as well. And so that you get good research and practice links as well, and that both can inform each other from a very close distance as well.
0: No, absolutely. I agree. And I think, you know, around the world, there are some very good models of that already happening where clinical institutions are attached to sort of scientific academic university institutions and you get the translational research going but we just need to do that on a much much bigger scale
1: yeah i agree it was a shame to hear him talk about the fact that due to covid the commission didn't get the traction that it deserves really
0: absolutely um and that is a massive shame in all honesty because as a as a speciality we struggle don't we you know we're a bit of a cinderella speciality we don't get the traction whether it be in research or even within hospitals you know we're We're often an afterthought or thought to be not relevant to a lot of clinical practice. And so having that Lancet commission was a big, big opportunity. And it's just a shame that the timing was a little bit taken out. But as Chris said, it's not the end of the world and they're still pushing with it. And there will be more traction, hopefully from more, you know, more of the message being put out there and using the commission in that way. So let's hope and let's all push it. Hopefully this podcast is part of that.
1: I would certainly encourage all our listeners to look it up. We'll put a link to the paper in the podcast notes and look it up, read it. It's highly relevant whether you're a researcher or a clinician uh, working in the field of paediatric pain.
0: Absolutely. So anyway, this has been quite a long episode because we obviously had a lot to say with Chris, which is brilliant. So we'll probably leave it there. Also, I think Conrad and I just let you know that this is sort of the last episode in this season, if we want to call it that. We are going to come back with a new season in the new year with some more episodes. And also there's going to be a bonus episode where Conrad and I are going to reflect a little bit on what we've talked about throughout the whole of this season.
1: I'm looking forward to that one.
0: Thank you all for listening. If you have any comments or questions,
1: do contact us on waterpainpodcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon. Bye.